0: Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and today we're going to look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to come upon us, enlighten us, open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might understand your Word, not just as the words printed on the page, but as the living Word as your revelation to us, and how it should cause us then to live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. That was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs, From two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise, and take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead.' And he arose and took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee, and came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now we know that in regular human interactions... uh, when, when there's a time in, in interactions when good progress is being made between two parties and when no progress is being made between two parties, usually when there's a, a disagreement. Um, and typically when no progress is being made, I'm going to stereotypify this, it, it will say this because one party has lost its temper, his or her temper, and they just begin to become... You know, angry, and they no longer think rationally or process things, and and they just start to scream. and And maybe uh, you grew up in a household where there was a lot of, of screaming and yelling, and and you understand that. And maybe you grew up in a very quiet um, household where people would talk to one another rather than than yell at one another. Um, whenever I, I, I deal with couples before they get married, it's interesting to find out which ones come from a loud background and which ones come from a quiet background. And then I say, well, how are you two going to disagree and interact? Because when the loud one starts to be loud, what's the quiet one going to do? Get quieter. Right? <laughs> Get quieter. So that, that's a problem. So uh, all that to say is I want you to jump to verse 16 here, and we're going to see an example of what happens when, when we let anger overcome us here. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Now, if, if we look at the word enraged, that's a pretty powerful word just to start with. okay? But then you add very in front of it and you get a, an extra level of it. And And really what this means in the Greek is simply out of control. Herod is so angry, he is so enraged that, you know, Not just one vein, but both veins on his forehead and his neck, veins on his neck are sticking out. And he's yelling and he is irrational and his anger has completely overcome any rational thought or process. That's what the Greek, that's the painting we get from the Greek word there. Uh, He is unable to control anything. He's just out of control. And why? It's because the Magi didn't come back and tell him about where Jesus was born. We see that having been warned, verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. They, we know that God was able to see through the plot of Herod. Herod was just kind of uh, sandbagging the Magi and said, Oh, come and tell me where he is so I can go and worship the king too. No, no, no. When Herod heard that there was another king that was going to be born, any challenge to him as we 'll see in a moment, he dealt with very harshly, and in fact, he was so enraged that the order goes out that every male child under two years old and under was to be killed in the, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area now um, it 's interesting that what we call the murder of the innocents is not listed for us, historically speaking, in any of the ancient manuscripts or any of the, the histories. The historian Josephus um, does not record the slaughter of the innocents in, the, in Bethlehem in that area. He does, however, now, now Josephus was, was a, a Jewish guy who was captured by the Romans and the Romans liked him so much as a historian that they had him write the history of their time, during mostly the first century. Um, So when we we refer back to Josephus quite a bit because we find that his history is often confirmed by other sources. Now, he was writing for the Romans, so what's what's the thing? The uh, uh, victors write the history, so the Romans were the victors, so they wanted to look good in history, but Josephus does give us a pretty good picture of what went on. But he doesn't record the murder of the innocents, but he does record a lot of things about Herod. So we can deduce from the way that Herod acted that going out and killing every male child under two years old was just standard operating procedure for Herod at that time. Let me give you some insight into Herod. He was crowned king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in about 40 B.C., and when he returned to Israel, the first First thing on his list was to get rid of everybody else who threatened his kingship. And, and that was everybody who was from the Hasmonean line, the Hasmonean line, the predecessors. So um, let me think. Antigonus was executed. Uh, Herod killed 45 other men from Antigonus's party. Uh, that was part of the Hasmoneans. He killed John uh, Hyrcanus. Uh, over a plot to overthrow him about 30 BC. He eliminated his brother-in-law Aristobulus, who was an 18-year-old high priest. Um, he killed his Hasmonean mother-in-law Alexandria. Uh, she was the mother of his favorite wife, Mariamma, whom he later killed. I'd hate to be his Least favorite wife, okay? Um, uh, so on and on, this, this was normal. And, and in 7 BC, he had 300 of his military leaders executed because he thought there was a plot to overthrow him. So the best way to do it was to wipe everybody out who may be included in that plot. He had a number of Pharisees executed that same year when a prophecy came through the Pharisees that said his kingship would be taken from him and given to someone else. Well, with all of these things circulating and the prophecies, you can understand that when the Magi show up and say, where's the king of the Jews? Uh, Herod gets pretty upset, and when he can't get to him, he just says, well, just in case, I'm going to kill everybody Of two years age or under. Now the question is, is this a big deal? Well, uh, sir, the killing of the innocents is always a big deal. How many could there have been? Well, the Orthodox Church in America um, puts the number at 14,000, which um, I don't really agree with. Uh, now, I did a little little local research. There were fifty about 56,000 babies born in Alabama in 2016. I couldn't find the figures from Madison County. You'd think that would be easy to find, but I, I couldn't find them. Um, so we'll just stick with 56,000. Uh, let's say there were... Um, uh, 5,000 born in Madison County. It was a nice round number. 300,000 people in Madison County. Uh, so you get an idea of the numbers. Well, we're talking about Bethlehem, which was this little bitty village. Not very large. Not Madison County. Not Huntsville. Not Madison. No big town like that. This is a small village that we're talking about with maybe a few hundred people in its area and maybe in the surrounding area. So uh, according to uh, Uh, the eminent scholar Randy Jenkins I think there's about a dozen Okay, now with that and four dollars we'll get you coffee uh, somewhere But so I want to give you an idea of, of the scope of this that it wasn't a difficult thing to do but it was still a terrible thing to do because Herod was so paranoid about the fact that someone might usurp his throne which he really didn't belong on anyway that he just killed everybody Everybody who was a threat to him, he killed. Well, nobody really in history notices this except Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew. And he looks back to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, and we see this in verse 18, um, as, as, as he quotes Jeremiah here and applies it to the killing of the innocents. And we'll see more of that in just a a second. We see many other places in the Old Testament where prophecies about the birth of Christ and the things of Christ and his life are very specific. Micah chapter 5 says he will be born in Bethlehem. Very specific. While other prophecies are general and can be applied locally in their context and down the road. That's what Matthew does with Jeremiah's prophecy here. The voice was heard in Ramah weeping and mourning Rachel, weeping for her children. That prophecy had a local application as well as the application that Matthew uses here during the birth of Christ. And then there are other prophecies that we'll call um, typological. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was a type of prophecy. And what was it prophesying? The sacrifice of Christ. It was pointing to, we call them typological. The sacrificial system was a type of sacrifice of Christ. One of the most important things that we learn from this passage, from verse 13 to 23, is the extent, to what extent Christ's person, his life, and his circumstances were foretold in the Old Testament. And how he his life was shaped by the book. And the book would be the Old Testament Scriptures. Matthew has a theme which flows throughout his gospel, that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, these are all fulfillments of Scripture. We see this in verse fifteen, uh, what was spoken by the prophets. And therefore, uh, and there was until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, out of Egypt did I call my son. Then you have verse 17 and 18, the killing of the innocents. And then verse 23, it says, And came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. So really, the life of Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, remember what he said? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is what the prophets foretold. It Happens to be exactly what would happen. So, um, uh, Matthew is very interested in that we understand that everything Christ did and all that happened to him is set forth in Scripture. It's as if Jesus, we, we might entitle him, a, he was a man of the book, and the book was the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophesied he would be this way. Sure enough, he was. Now, whenever I've had the opportunity to charge a pastor who is being ordained, or charge a pastor who is being installed. Um, that hasn't happened here in quite a while. Um, but you know, when there's a service of ordination, a service of installation, then what happens is you get. Um, Uh, It's pretty high church. You get all these ministers show up in their fancy robes. And it's a very solemn occasion because we're we're putting someone in a position of spiritual authority and spiritual responsibility. So uh, I've been uh, privileged to give the charge to the pastor on a few occasions. And I give them the same charge that was given to me. Be a man of the book. Now read from the book of Nehemiah. And it talks about the importance of the scriptures. There are many things in our lives that will take our attention. Many things in our lives that call us to uh, examine them. And maybe this is truth. And maybe this is truth. And maybe this is truth. But the charge to every pastor is to be a man of the book. This is the book. This is what's important. Um, Pastors have been uh, gifted and educated to study this, to teach it, and to help people apply it in their lives. And Jesus was a man of the book. Everything about his life was laid out for us so that we can understand that this is not chance, that this was prophesied long ago. And this is a challenge for each of us. As we look at it, will I live by the book or will I live by my own will? Because, let's face it, there are plenty of times where the book says... This is how we should live. And I look at it and go, I really want to live that way, okay? Because that's hard, or that's not nearly as much fun, or that doesn't work in our society the way that I would like it to. But Scripture says this is how you are called to live. This, This is the way that your mind is supposed to process information through the teachings of God's word first, Okay? We don't go to prayer last because it's the last result. We go there first because we want to put everything before the Lord. We want to be people of the book. We want to, our lives to be shaped and formed according to the revelation that is given to us by the Lord. Not the wisdom of the world, but the revelation of God. So, maybe you've been in circumstances in your life like we see here in Matthew chapter 2. Circumstances that are difficult, circumstances that require what's been known as a long obedience in the same direction, where our hearts are ready to fail us. You think about We are called to be faithful in the same thing even though it doesn't look like we're making progress. But this is what the Lord calls us to do. And you are to be there and you are to be faithful. And you look around and you say, but nobody else wants to be faithful, Lord. But you are called to do that. That is the obedience that we are called to and in our instant society where we have instant communication and and we can read about events that are a world away almost instantaneously because somebody is there at the scene with their iPhone and they're putting it on Facebook or whatever right away we can see things in an instant yet we are called to rest in God and his revealed will and and we because it doesn't always come to us in an instant we can't always look up in, in certain pages and, and, and say, well, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, here it is. Which decision am I supposed to make? Well, well, it's not always listed for us. The things about God's character and how we are called to live are listed for us. The application of that rests in our hearts as informed by Scripture. And there's not one of us, I bet, in this room who doesn't struggle with that on a regular basis. Am I going to live according to what I want or according to what God wants. Now let's look at these trials that Christ went through even as an infant here because they were part of God's plan for him. They were part of God's sovereign plan for his son. God ordained those trials in the life of Joseph and Mary and Jesus Jesus for specific purposes. One as we have seen, Matthew said they were foretold by the prophets. This is what God told his prophets and he said prophets preach this to the people and the prophets said this is what will happen now how did the prophets know that the king herod would slaughter these children how did the prophets know that jesus christ would come back and would not be able to move into the land of his fathers and have to move up into galilee into the dreaded area of nazareth and nobody liked the people from nazareth we'll see that in a moment well, the, the Old Testament says uniformly that the Lord revealed his will to the prophets. They preached it. It was written down. This is what would happen. So the plan of God had to exist long before the Old Testament prophets. This was always the Lord's plan. Look at verse fourteen, fifteen, with me. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and there was there and was there until the death of Herod that was spoken that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now Egypt would have been a uh, outside of the prophetic place to be, it was also probably a Jewish enclave. In Egypt, when the Romans took over areas, they didn't always clean things out. They would simply put their people in to rule. So Alexandria, or, or uh, yeah, Alexandria, was probably a had a pretty large Jewish population. So Joseph may have had friends or family who were already there uh, living. So that was a place to some degree of safety and security for them. Um, And Egypt was also outside the jurisdiction of Herod. So even if he knew that they were there, he couldn't go and do anything about it. Now, we know the book of Hosea is all about the relationship between a prophet and his wife. Now, you say, Hosea, how did we get there? You'll see in just a second. Hosea is the prophet and Gomer his wife. She is unfaithful, eventually ends up in a brothel, and Hosea goes and redeems her out of that and brings her back brings her back into the house. And it's a clear portrait of God and Israel in the Old Testament, and God is faithful to deliver his prom- on his promises. So here's the fulfillment from Hosea chapter 11. The Messiah and the fact that they travel to Egypt, where his father calls him, out of Egypt, and he 's to save his people, so that's a prophecy from Hosea chapter eleven then verses twenty two and twenty three But when he heard that uh, Acelias was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee, so the Lord comes back with his parents from Egypt, after Herod's death. And Herod, by the way, died fitting of a man who was that evil. Uh, Josephus, the, the historian, tells us exactly how Herod died. He had rotting entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor, nor warm baths led to recovery. It's a bad way to go. Bad way to go. Okay. But Herod was a bad guy. Now, because his son is there, they move on, and he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in the city of Nazareth. Why? That what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He'll be called a Nazarene. The only problem is it never explicitly states in the Old Testament that he will be from Nazareth. Now, so what we gather from this is that there are different places that talk about the Messiah and the place that he is from. Um, one, that, that the Messiah will be hated, he'll be ridiculed. Um, now, uh, it's a compilation of prophecies along that line. Now, Nazareth was the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, um, It was known as a rude, corrupt, shameful place, lots of bad behavior up there. Uh, John chapter 1 says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because it was just a bad place. Um, Jesus was uh, despised and hated, and that's what the prophets said would happen. And it took Joseph, moving his family to a bad section of the country, away from any family to fulfill the prophecies in the book about the life of Jesus. Now, Galilee—the whole section—was despised by all the good Jews of the day because they had. It was, it was up in the Samaria, and they had interbred, and didn't, they didn't go into exile; they stayed there, so they had interbred with Gentiles, and the good Jews felt everybody from up there was corrupt, and part of that area was Nazareth, and so everything was bad up there. Now. All these things happened to Joseph and marrying and Jesus. They had run out of town. They had to go to a place far away. Jesus was raised for many years in a place away from his home. And even when he came back to his home, he couldn't actually go to his home, but had to go to a place that was on the wrong side of the tracks and be raised up there. Why? You would think that the father would want his son to be raised in a place that was... Was was culturally, socially, um, just a, a place where he could be nurtured and 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 grown and raised in, in safety and security, but that was not what the Father willed for His Son Jesus. The Father willed these difficulties for Him, and one of the ways that we understand this is from the Book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four says He learned obedience through that which He suffered. See. Obedience is something that humans have to figure out, that humans have to practice, that we have to subject our will in obedience to some other will. Here you have Jesus Christ, who is 100% man and 100% God. And that portion of him that was man had to learn obedience to his heavenly father, that his human will and that portion of it was Always to be subjected to the will of the Father. In fact, Jesus says what? To do the will of the Father is my meat and drink. It's what I do. It's what I live for. It's what I love. How did he learn to do that? Through obedience. Through discipline. Through the shaping of his human nature into what Isaiah called the suffering servant. By bringing about these trials and sufferings in his life. We think of our own trials and sufferings. And are they teaching us obedience, or are are we just moaning and complaining about them? Or do we look at them and say, this is what the Lord has for me in the midst of this. I don't like it, I don't appreciate it, I don't understand it, but yet it is here that I must learn obedience. Because if we're not being disciplined by the Father, what's that a sign of? He doesn't love us. Okay the father who loves his children disciplines him and when we say discipline it is not always we're not talking about a paddle and disciplining him that way we're talking about shaping and molding through sometimes trials through sometimes temptations, through sometimes sufferings. These are the disciplines that the Lord brings into our lives that are oftentimes very unpleasant, but they shape us and mold us. And, and these things are allowed in or are brought into our lives because the Lord loves us and wants us to be more conformed to the things of Christ day in and day out. I, I don't know what you've suffered. I know some. You know some of what I have suffered, but this applies to every believer, to every believer, to every trial, to every heartbreak, to every grief, to everything we think will push us beyond our own limits to, that we will be able to bear, whether it be loneliness or isolation. Whether it be a spouse that you think you can't live with for another day. Whether it be children that are driving you crazy. Whether it be a, a job that you think is just going to crush you. Whether it be the onset of a disease or some sort of suffering or some pain in your life. If he has called you to endure the loss of something in your life. Caused you, called you to endure a pain in your life. He has done this so that you might learn obedience. And sometimes it's a long obedience sometimes it is a very long obedience but it is not an expression of god's meanness it is not an expression of his anger it is an expression of his love towards you to shape you and mold you to conform you to the image of christ and if our savior experienced disciplines just in his young life in this way are we to expect any different Are we to expect that, well, all those things Christ had to suffer, I don't have to experience any of those. No, if they hated him, they'll hate us. If he was disciplined and had to learn obedience, we must learn it in the same way. In fact, to be exempt from any discipline would be a sign that we are outside of the Father's love. So when you do not think you can bear it, another second, whatever it is in your life, Remember, it was the father's will to send his son into the valley of despair. Into very difficult times. Because of his love for him. That his son would learn obedience. That his son would learn to love his father even more. Let's pray. Lord, we see so much of Jesus' life laid out for us in the Old Testament. Events, character, names. Jesus was a, a man of the book. You call us to be people of the book as well. That our lives would be shaped first and foremost in accordance with what you have provided for us. That we would understand from your word the things that come into our lives are there to shape and mold us. The sufferings, the joys, the blessings, the trials, all of these things you allow or bring into our life so that we might know you more. So that we might understand you more so that we might be drawn to you even more and and dig deeper and deeper into your word, into who you are, into what you have for us, that we might rely more and more upon you. That whatever it is that we face, you have already given us the grace to sustain us. You have already gone before us in that suffering. You have already gone before us in that trial. You provide for us everything that we need. You will be with us there. We will still go through them. But your word makes it clear. We are sustained by you in the same way that you sustained your son through his. We give you thanks for this in Christ's name. Amen.